This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Hi, everybody. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, host of Church Life Today. Before we get to today's episode, just a quick word from me to you. We just passed our second anniversary of this show, and I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening. And thanks for all the great feedback you've sent our way in the past two years. If you like what you hear in our conversations with pastoral leaders and scholars, please pass our episodes along to others. Everything's available online at RedeemerRadio.com slash churchlife or on SoundCloud at Church Life Today. And if you live in an area where your local Catholic radio station does not carry our show, call your station, send them an email, ask them to take us on. Now let's get to today's show. Father Mike Schmitz seems to be somewhere and everywhere at the same time. The somewhere is the Diocese of Duluth, where he not only serves as the director of the Office of Youth Ministry, but also as chaplain for Newman Catholic Campus Ministries at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. But it feels like he's everywhere because he has become one of the most prominent and effective public evangelists in the Catholic Church in America. His short catechetical videos pop up on YouTube and all over social media all the time. He's ministering to young people both where he lives and where the rest of us live. That is to say, he seems to be preaching and ministering to people everywhere. Well, today he's here with me in the studio for a conversation about the faith lives of young people, the importance of family, and a lot more. Thanks for joining me, Leonard DiLorenzo and Father Mike Schmitz here on Church Life Today. Father Mike Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So you minister to college students, young adults at the University of Minnesota Duluth. You direct youth ministry for your diocese. Your videos and podcasts are seen by especially young people near and far. So I think we could suffice it to say that you devote a lot of your time to serving young people. Right. Um, So I wanted to start out by asking, like, what are some of the most important issues or concerns you're paying attention to in the lives and faith development of young people today? Yeah, I think it's probably not a a mystery to uh, anyone who's paying attention at all. Like, Mm -hmm. will you have, you know, Christian Smith's work? Right. Um, Who's here? He, yeah, he teaches. Right, he's, yeah, he's wow. I didn't really never make that connection. Yeah. I, he's been really influential in, in kind of uh, putting on my radar what to look for. Okay. Among other things, uh, being uh, he, I think, more successfully or adequately predicted the rise of the nuns mm-hmm. than more than anyone else when he coined that term moralistic therapeutic deism right. as uh, that religion that— The kinda, default religion the default of religion America. Of America, of America right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I see that as— Something that has now morphed or evolved into into what it now has contributed to the nuns. And beyond that, his work with uh, the moral life, you know, the lost in transition, um, the moral life of American young adults, and not having a moral language or an ability to make moral decisions because of no categories and no, like, nothing more to making a moral decision other than this is how I feel. Right. And so— um, And I don't want to offend you, right? Like, this yeah. is how I oh, yeah, feel, yeah, and exactly. I hope not to offend you. Those, yeah. are the, those seem to be the two points of consideration. Yeah, right? and yeah. in that sense of, like, even—I I remember it just always comes back to me, the notion of something's not bad, it's, it's not wrong, you're being stupid. No, some things we now in, recently have been reintroduced in our common culture as, like, that is wrong. Right. And people are very, very quick to be incredibly judgmental and throw around these terms of like, you know, you're evil because why? Oh, you're a racist. You're a sexist. Like these are things that are clearly wrong. I mean, they are, right? Right. But that sense of like this new rise of 
the things that we would consider, I guess, condemnable mm-hmm. in people. And so this this culture that was bred with, you know, moralistic, ther- moralistic therapeutic deism with this like anti-judgmentalism is also now without a context, without rooting itself in like a bigger metaphysics, you know, in a bigger worldview uh-huh. has given rise to a lot of very quick to uh, be judgmental. I mean, have, you, have you noticed yeah, that? Yeah, that's really interesting. So even the, the rise of this newer thing, like the cancel culture, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, so exactly. this would be an extreme, extreme case of this. So for those who are listening, you might not know cancel culture is basically if somebody has been incredibly offensive, especially in the mm-hmm. public square, have said has been branded as, let's say, a, a racist or a bigot, because of something as maybe they put on social media, right. a celebrity, whatnot, the response or part of the response can be what's called cancel culture, which is basically like you just erase that person from the public consciousness, mm-hmm. you stop sharing their things, you try to silence them. So there's no in, there's no engagement. There's no kind of, you know, maybe the thing was objectionably wrong, mm-hmm. but that's the response. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there's this this really unique, I remember hearing a couple years ago, a priest who I just thought, this is very insightful. He says, we live in a culture where everyone's deathly afraid of being judged, mm. but there's no right or wrong. Deathly afraid of being judged, but there is no right or wrong. Yeah, there's no right or wrong in our culture kind of thing, but you're deathly afraid. I mean, it came up, I I would see this constantly on campus where it was, uh, it was even if it was used as a joke, like, don't judge me kind of a thing. But it was was connected to something that was more core than I think a lot of our students were realizing. Hmm. And again, you take the foundations or this worldview where you're not just kind of floating in the abyss. Like you're actually, you're known by the creator of the universe. And he's a personal creator who made you on purpose. And as I said, knows you and loves you. You take all of that context away. And of course, you're afraid of being judged because the only other is the other in front of me. And the only other is the other that's culture or whatever the thing is. But that other, that culture, unless it's rooted in mercy and rooted in truth and all these other elements of like our Christian faith, it's not gonna be able to adequately even answer the right condemnation. You can't, you can offer only like the harshest of natural justice. You can't offer justice and mercy. Mm-hmm. And so you either have to want to, think about, have you ever thought about this? I just think this is so fascinating. Let me just work this out. Without the balance of Christianity that here is God who reveals himself as completely just and completely mercy. Right. That without that balance, you either have to choose one or the other. It's either mm-hmm. the harsh reality of life and it's, there's no justice, there's no, so there's justice but no compassion, or it's all compassion and no justice. Yeah. And yet in the Christian worldview, it's like, no, no, we can be both completely just and completely merciful because he is. And, what, is no, I, no, I love this. And I, I'm, I was actually involved in some conversations even earlier today kind of related to this. And I think part of it is our, our God, the God who's been revealed to us, the Christian God, is always personal. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. there isn't any part of God that there's the, the sort of withdrawal of the person. It's always a personal address. That we're addressed at all yeah. is a personal yes. address, right? Wow. Um, every, everything from God is not just an explanation, it's an action. And this is sealed clearly in the incarnation. This is the response of our accompaniment. Mm. It's not the idea that we're accompanied. It's actually the Being, action that, yeah. he's, that God has taken on in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the conditions that we have. And so there's actually proof, something to point to. But, you know, going back to what you were saying, like, and I think this is this was part of Christian Smith's insight is that action, that enfleshment has been de-emphasized. Yeah. And so you have the idea of this sort mm. of wow. God who's accompanying you, but we don't go back to the action, the proof of it. Yeah. And when you have the truth, like this idea without the proof, pretty soon that truth's going to go too because there's nothing to ground it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And it makes so much sense because I, I even like, I want to highlight, you should underscore in the notes or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
uh, not an explanation. He doesn't offer an explanation. No. He offers himself. Yeah. And the, the, we're writing a homily right now. Sorry. Are we? So this is great. That. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> because I just think of like, you know, in the book of Job. I was he, just thinking this. Yeah, go okay, ahead. Good yeah, this yeah, way, yeah. It's good. I remember reading it because it was like, oh, yeah, Job is this, you know, it's the book about human suffering and God's uh -huh. answer to human suffering. So I remember reading it. I might have been in high school, maybe the first yeah. couple of years of college. And I read it. And I'm like, oh, where's the answer? Where's the what answer? Do you say, Honestly. Yeah, what do you say in response to suffering? And I didn't get it until I was reading someone who was explaining. I think it might have been Peter Kraft or someone uh -huh. like this. And they pointed out that there's a line um, at the end of the book of Job where he says, previous to this, I had heard of you, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. And I repent in dust, and I, and I repent, Jokes and I have no more questions. Ah. And I repent. That sense of like, yeah, all my friends came by and they gave me an explanation. Yeah, but I've seen you now. Yeah, and in light in your face, all questions fade away. So I don't need an explanation. Yeah. And, and I think it was Crave who had pointed this. He expanded it, and he pointed out like the reality of our hearts. If God had given Job an explanation, an answer in a second, Job's amazing mind, like our amazing minds, yeah. would have the ability to create three more questions based off of that answer. Right. And then 12 more questions based off of that answer. Right. So there'd be no end to the number of questions we would have. And God simply gave us an explanation. Yeah. But when he gives us himself, then it's like, okay, now I get it. And at Is best, that, yeah, no, I yeah. love this. Like at best, Job would have fallen in love with the explanation, right? right. Like yeah. I have oh, gosh, this idea, yeah. I have that. this idea and I'm gonna build my life off of an idea, yeah. but you can't build your life off of an idea. Yeah. You build your life off of this personal encounter. Instead of bringing it back to our culture, That's cultural right. context yeah. now. Is I think this is one of the things that we're trying to say when we say people have been catechized but not evangelized. Okay. Is that even if someone has been given the explanation, here's the reasons to believe, yeah. um, but they've never been given the opportunity to encounter the Lord as he is, mm -hmm. um, or as he reveals himself, uh, then yeah, I, I, I might agree with these propositions. I might see their truth, but I might not but it won't win my heart, it won't win my entire life. Mm. Um, unless someone's really, you know, uh, noble in yeah. that sense that they just, they, they're a purist when it comes to truth notions. They could shape their life around the truth they understand. They're vigorous in terms right. of like following through on an idea, yeah. and following through on a notion that I, I want to live this way. Yeah, yeah. but right. then you're missing the heart because right. the heart is the person, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. So in our culture right now, one of the things that I've seen a lot of movement in the Catholic Church towards is, is the encounter. So I remember reading... It was a survey explanation, I'm not sure, but it was a Pew study, I think, uh -huh. that was, so we know we're losing a lot of people who are raised Catholic, right? but then as adults, they choose not to pursue that. Yeah. So rather than look at the dark spot, that dark number, they said, what are the bright spots? And there are three commonalities they found with a lot of those who made a successful transition from a childhood faith to a mature adult faith. And among them were these three spots. One was they had been part of, they've been involved in a church activity at least one time outside of mass per week, you know, on a regular basis, like weekly, essentially. So that'd be youth group, religious ed, Bible study, small group, whatever. Got it. Um, second thing was they had a parent, or sorry, a person, an adult other than a parent, invest deeply in them. And the third thing is they had an encounter with God as God or as other, as a transcendent but intimate. Hmm. So they, with the person, basically, we're talking about um, the encounter with God as real. And so it's like, okay, wow. So that really shaped a lot of our campus ministry and youth ministry stuff, is that sense of, okay, we really like having college volunteers in our parishes, and I still do. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're asking of them and what we're asking of the adult volunteers is, do you have the bandwidth to actually be in the lives of these people in your religious ed class, you know? Um, or, or is it kind of like one of those things you're going to show up for an hour and a half on Wednesdays? Yeah. And that's good. We appreciate it. But what they need is they need someone who's 
willing to be in their lives? Is it too much to expect from a religious ed teacher or volunteer right. catechist? But what I need to be aware of is I, as an uncle, I can speak into the lives of my nieces and nephews in a way that their moms and dads can't. Right. Their moms and dads are there always loving them really well, right. but I get to do things that they can't. I get to say things they can't. I get to accompany in a different way. And so maybe it's the catechist, but maybe it's Uncle Jim, you know, kind yeah. of a thing. And then the second thing we try to do is if the second piece is on a regular basis, we want to provide opportunities for them to encounter like community on a regular basis. And I know for me, when I was growing, I'm so grateful for being raised Catholic because uh-huh. by parents who like brought me to church because it was like, oh yeah, of course. Like, I remember walking into the parish thinking, like, of course I belong here. Like, there was never a question in my Uh mind of, did I belong? Because it was like, that's where we went on Sundays. And then we bopped in uh, a couple of other times a week. Nothing, like, over the top. Like, my parents weren't, like, super, like, we're going to the church again, you know, kind of a thing. (laughs) They were just natural about it. And so it was like, yeah. And actually, any Catholic church we walk into, I belong here. Yeah. And just, I never realized and appreciated it until about five years ago. I was talking with some of our students who had come through RCIA. And I just, listening to them, I'm like, oh, you don't have, that's not part of your experience yet. That any Catholic church you walk into, like you fully belong there, you even if you it. don't know yeah. where the bathrooms are. That's right. Like, yeah. this is, that's right. This, you be, you're supposed to be here. That's and right. then that third piece of like honoring the Lord as transcendent and imminent, as real. Uh, so we, some of the things that, oh gosh, the Lord, he reveals himself so clearly to us through the sacraments, among other things. But the sacraments, uh, I encountered Christ in a, probably a, a way that transformed my life more than any other as a 15-year-old going to confession. Is that right? I, it was, I would tell the story many times, but I just, I, it was, I, needed, I knew I needed to go. It was one, I never cared about church right. at all, but I was aware that I needed to go to confession. So I'm like, well, I should, and I know where the priest lives, and I'll ride my bike over to his house. And so 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, rode my bike across town, knocked on the door, and he was there. And I was like, can I go to confession? Sure, come on in. So went to confession, and I remember walking off the front porch. I was stepping off the, off the front porch, and had three clear thoughts in my head. One was, God, thank you so much. Like, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, God, you just saved me. It was one of those moments of, I know what it is. Jesus is the savior. Oh my gosh, I, I he's, he's real. You know, he really in that case, this. you actually could say, oh my God. It would be oh, yeah, perfectly exactly. fine, right? You don't, even have, you don't even have to that, soften that's it. That's yeah. true, it's right. true. And my second thought was, God, if you want me to be a priest, I'll hear anyone's confession uh-huh. anytime they wow. ask. I never thought about this in my wow. entire life. And so when I go back and read Pope Benedict's uh, God is Love in that yeah. first page when yeah. he said, becoming a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or lofty ideal, the result of an encounter mm. that gives one's life a new horizon that and sets the, it in a decisive direction. That was I'm the like, encounter. that's the moment. That was the encounter. Because I can trace everything back to then when I stepped off the porch and started this whole new walk with him. And so imperfect, yeah. obviously, right? And, but just so like, that was it. That was the encounter. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, and you're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Father Mike Schmitz, chaplain for Newman Catholic Campus Ministries at the University of Minnesota Duluth and director of the Office of Youth Ministry for the Diocese of Duluth. You used a, a phrase that's become popular as you were talking there a little while ago, catechized but not evangelized, right? right? I found it really interesting then that you brought this back to the sacraments, because I think a lot of times, and this is sometimes, I think there's a lot of energy behind that idea, and then there's some critique that goes along with it too. Right. And maybe much of the critique has to do with maybe thinking that like this proposal of being evangelized has to do with something kind of mystical, not mm. tethered to real Catholic stuff, like you're waiting for the personal revelation of the Lord to right. you personally, right? And in fact, that's what you're pointing to, but it was a it was mediated through the sacraments, yeah. right? Like this is a very Catholic thing. Like the Lord does actually come to us, gives himself to us in these ways, sacramentally. So I, I just want to kind of like bring that up. 
do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I, you know, I, the sacramental part of this. I definitely do because um, it's all connected to even the original question, which was what is that? What are the trends or what do you? Yeah, what with I the see young is, people doing, right? And I would say that we catechized, not evangelized, and like no, 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 we haven't even catechized. We've sacramen- we haven't even we have, we've sacramentalized, not even catechized, nor evangelized. Okay, and so. That could be, that's hollow when we don't have any of the stuff after the, the, the sacraments. Which, to follow that point, it's kind of like, here are just these things you do. Yeah. Right? And then that's it. Like, yep. you're baptized, that's it. Mm-hmm. You receive First Communion, that's it. You receive Confirmation, that's definitely it. Right. Right? That's definitely yeah. it. So the catechesis that goes along with it, which is preparatory, but it's also the lifelong formation that yes. comes to enter more deeply into the mystery. You're saying, in some cases, we've done the markers of like, here are the things you have to do as mm-hmm. a young person, yeah. but we haven't done everything around there to actually form a life according to those sacraments. Yeah, right? yeah that okay. makes so much sense. I mean, okay. I'm trying to think of a good analogy for that, but I, I can't. All I can come up with is is a framed house, uh-huh. and you have the frame there, yeah. and it's like, yes, that's what that's what we're built around, sacraments. Yeah. We're yeah. built around the way that God gives us his spiritual reality and transforms our spirituality through physical things. Yep, there it is. And saying, that's home. Huh. Like, well, what? This is home? Yeah, that's the bathroom over there, and that's the bathroom right there. Like, but I just don't, I don't, rather than like, oh, now I get it. So I, yeah. I think sometimes even, like the videos I do are basically your, this is why. You have a question about why do we do this? Well, here's why. Yeah. And just even giving this most simple of reasons, they're not very, like, super articulate or super, like. Oh, uh, they're good. What's, what's, yeah. We're not, like, what, they're not complex, right? They're okay. just, like, trying to make it they're accessible. accessible. And they're the short. Word. They're right. short. They're meant to be kind of taken in. You don't have to invest a lot of time. Right. It gives you a little bit for what you're looking for. Yeah, and so, and so then you have a, a sense of like, oh, that's that's what they mean when they've been telling me this my whole life. Yeah. And that's my experience too yeah. is, is I don't care about this. I don't care about mass. I don't care about conf- – I don't care about any of this stuff. Oh, that's what you meant when you said mm. this. And so um, there is a piece there where we're recognizing the sacraments. Um, they have a power even if uh, – they're efficacious, right? Mm-hmm. Even when we're not – we don't do our thing. Yeah. They do, God and, does the thing. Yes. Yeah. And yet when that uh, – so I think Thomas Aquinas, he had – have you ever heard of the term bound sacrament? Bound? Yeah. I don't think I have. So the, the idea behind it would be um, – and he might, have, might not have been Aquinas' term, but other people have talked about it, and he kind of said something. So God is always present in his sacraments, mm-hmm. but they don't always make a difference and impact in our lives because we haven't cooperated with it or been open to the there grace that he's offering. Right. And so that sense of we can be sacramentalizing – and without that, you know, next, that further allowing to grow, yeah. we can experience a bound sacrament kind of a thing. It's like the parable of the sower. I mean, if exactly you think, right, what it it's is. about like, this the, is the what God is doing. Power, it's yeah. not forced upon us. Yeah. Like part of it is our reception of this gift. And part of that reception is our response to the yeah. gift. Like actually a change, a change in our life, a change in our action. And to go back to, you were talking about God is love, Benedict's encyclical. Later he says, the Eucharist that does not pass over into the concrete service of neighbor mm. is intrinsically fragmented. Right. In other words, like, that gift that we receive is still the gift, but we're not completing the gift when we don't become the gift. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I, I even like love the fact that you used the parable of the sower because what contributes to soil that's potentially fruitful? Mm. And this is where I look at our culture a little bit and see um, one of the difficulties. I think this may be the—I re- don't know if this is the reason for the nuns, but I think that it's one of the critical reasons that in this point in time, everything that's unfolded from the Enlightenment yeah. on has reached this moment. And it is because, I think, uh, because of the family. And what I mean by that is not just like, oh, the family, kind of like in this <laughs> abstract way, but I mean it like in the very, in the most concrete of ways. So before this, I mentioned that all three of my sisters moved back to our hometown. Brother who lives with his family in North Carolina, brother who lives in Brooklyn, um, and me who lives in Duluth. So 
I get to see how my sisters are raising their families with my parents. What happens is Sunday, yeah, I'm on the family group text. What mass are we going to? What are we doing? This kind of thing. Whose house are we eating at afterwards? The whole family. So the all three, all sisters three sisters and plus your my parents. parents. It's uh, well, we went mass we went last night, but we'll go to brunch at whoever's house. Okay. And that sense of like, I think of how many young people, and old people as well, but young people who would be who would not be nuns except for the fact that I don't have anyone to go to mass with me. Yeah. Like if I if I live back in my hometown, and so I don't just mean family in abstract. I mean family like no, it's expected you move back where your family is right as opposed to what we're expected now which is okay when you're adult what you do is you, you leave, leave home you, everyone who knew you who cared about you who loved you you leave all of them and go to a place where no one knows you no one cares about you no one loves you and make your way and if you do that you're an adult and that's the image of thriving right we're exactly to young to young especially young adults like yeah. you are thriving if basically you can leave the place that you were attached to and not feel remorse or guilt yeah. and if you feel that you're not doing it right. Yeah. You know? What do you call? I always say You're this. Weak. What do you call people who move back to their hometown? Losers. <laughs> like I mean, that's, that's the idea, that's the, idea. Right? the perception. Right. And yet, you think for centuries, millennia, how was the faith passed on? It was like, mm. well, yeah, I went through that time in my life, but I had family who was walking with me. Yeah. And so again, when I say other like adults the, who were invested other adults, in me yeah, outside exactly. of my parents, right? So yeah. not just yeah, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, yeah. my dad. He had his grandparents lived upstairs from him, and they were probably more influential. I mean, they were just as influential. Right. He had neighbors who were cousins and uncles yep. who lived right down. And it was one of those things where it was... So I, again, go back to right now. To see my nieces and nephews where mass or going to church is not an isolated event. And it's not just the, yeah, we put in our time, do our hour, maybe have some coffee and cookies afterwards, and then go back to life. It's right. It bleeds over into all the rest of the week because mm. it's all about family. Mm. And that sense of like, so if our family's fragmented... If I'm dispersed, if we're, I mean, I, I think there's, it's not an exaggeration to, for someone to dive deeply into the theology of dispersion Ooh. and how it robs us of our identity, because that's what happened with the dispersion, right? Yeah. Is that you're no longer connected to Jerusalem. You're no, no longer connected to the temple worship. So who are you in the first place? You're not even connected to your family, to your homeland, to your people. You forget who you are. Mm. And I think that's what's happened. I think that's one of the big things. So when it comes to creating community in parishes, it's like, okay, we're trying to make up, we're trying to artificially create what naturally occurs through the family. And now that's not, doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that's what we're going for. Yeah. And that's always going to have inherent difficulties, always going to have this kind of sense of like, we're missing the mark slightly because you can always leave. In a parish, you're saying. In a parish, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where the parish, like the family used to be the buy-in to the parish. Right, yeah. Right? And it's easy for us to get nostalgic around this stuff. about. <laughs> right. especially it was this, so perfect back yeah, in the... And, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Southern California. Like part of it was Southern California, but part of it's also when I grew up, like that reality wasn't even fully my reality at that mm-hmm. point, right? So I'm nostalgic for this thing I never knew right. as if that would make it better. But I think you're pointing to something really important, which is actually the way of strengthening parishes goes by way of the family. And we have to especially with our young young adults, young emerging adults, whatever, we actually have to confront that ideal that's been put up before yeah. them that a lot of times even those of us involved in church work perpetuate, which is that here's the image of thriving. You become this lone ranger, this yeah. sort of maverick who does it yourself. And maybe we have to we have to shift this and here's the image of thriving. It's actually the responsibility to those uh, that you've shared life with, mm-hmm. that you go back to share life with, that you spend time with, struggle with, like your sisters in your hometown, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, well, even yeah. even your key of the word responsibility mm. is so important, right? Mm. Because I'm not responsible to a group. No. I'm only responsible to uh, individuals. And so I, I will always go back to this. Like real relationships always have real responsibilities. Yeah. They have real rights. Right. But 
they always have to have our responsibilities. And so like you can make demands on me. So Mother Teresa, I think she said this. We've, the reason we are in such a predicament, that's the paraphrase, is because we've forgotten we belong to each other. Uh. I think she said it because it's on a plaque. We could publish a book like the things Mother Teresa said and did (laughs) not say. It would be a great research project. But nevertheless, it's the sort of thing she would say. It's the kind of thing she would say. But that sense of we've forgotten we belong to each other. And I would say that, yeah, gosh, it goes back even to, you could say, industrialization uh, caused this whole thing. And sure. But then then the question would be, what do we do? So if, if that's one of our wounds, if that's one of the, the gaps we are now having in our culture, I think it's one of the reasons why in our diocese, at least, we've been experimenting more and more. We've moved away from youth ministry being something that is, we separate the youth from their parents, and more something where it's like, let's bring the families together. Fantastic. And um, we're offering, and not just because we need to evangelize and catechize mom and dad, right? but also because like this is really good to bring them together. And, and as you probably know, I mean, this is, I think, probably widely out there, is I remember when I first came across the difference between Gen X and millennial mm-hmm. uh, relationship with parents. Mm-hmm. And so this is back in the day, right? This is like yeah. 10, 15 years old. But that sense of putting on an event for youth, Gen X youth, getting away from their parents, um, having an encounter with the Lord. They, it was powerful. They want to change their lives. They go back to mom and dad. Mom and dad's like, no, you need to calm down your faith. They're like, oh, yeah? Well, and they rebel against uh-huh. the parents and get more deeply in their faith. I mean, it was actually something that was would, the rebellion. would solidify. <laughs> and I was like, that's I'm great. Go to church more. And yeah, now, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now with more recent history with millennial relationship with their parents, they have the same encounter with the Lord, but then mom and dad would say, ah, cool it. And like, okay, I'm sorry. Wow. And it was, I saw it happen again and again. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I I put myself in their position. I was like, I would have been more like, oh yeah, well. And they were like, okay, I can't come uh, because yeah, my mom and dad, they're they're not about this. It's not part of the package that we're creating here for what I'm going to be. And so one of the things we try to do more and more is we have like a weekend called Tobit. Theology of the Body, Immersion for Teens. Oh, and I love the so acronym. A, That's yeah, fantastic, so good, yeah. On m- multiple levels. Yeah. So we get the teens there. So it's, you know, mostly juniors and seniors, but we accept some sophomores. And then a couple weeks later, the guy who presents with me, Nick Davidson is his name, he and I will put on a day-long seminar for the whole okay. diocese oh. for anyone who wants to oh, come. So, like, if these teens come back and they're like, yeah, it was incredible. We heard these talks about yeah. And they can't <laughs> they can't necessarily convey, as juniors in high school, right. the theology of the body. Right. That, um, well, in two weeks, there's this thing, mom and dad, if you want to go to, it's, you know, it's one you day. And, yeah. and so just even those little elements of trying like to that. bridge the I gap like between here's what they heard, here's what mom and dad have heard, um, seems to help sometimes. I mean, obviously, it's not a magic bullet. Right. right. But, but it's a, it's a different kind of approach. Well, Father Mike, I feel like we could keep talking for yeah, four or five so hours. Good. But thank you so uh, much. Thank you for making time for joining us here on Church Life today. Where can people find uh, some of your homilies productions it's just just google your name i, suppose, I think right? so yeah, yeah. I, okay. we do uh, i think i found 271 videos through ascension oh for real yeah, i don't you, know how many there are that's how many you've so done like, at least okay. yeah so that's so. on youtube and okay. then we have um sunday homilies on itunes and spotify and soundcloud and out there out there out there however this things happen so well thank you very much for being with us Absolutely. and thanks to all of you for joining us on church life today This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. 
Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?